Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Do any of you ever feel lonely? Anybody ever struggle with that? I did a little research on loneliness, and according to the Wikipedia article, they say one in every five people struggle at times with bouts of loneliness. Now, you would think that with the advent of the internet and social media, you know, Twitter, Snapchat, Facebook, that all of a sudden this problem with loneliness would start to go away. Actually, statistics say it hasn't. It's actually grown a little worse Because people say, according to the research, that people are more lonely today than they were in 1984 before the internet and social media came around. But there's one particular group that really struggles with loneliness, and that is the elderly. There was a study that was done in England about how the... elderly feel about loneliness. And in the study, it discovered that half a million people in England over the age of 60 go an entire week without somebody talking to them. Half a million people. And that there's a full million people over the age of 60 that go five to six days without social interaction. So clearly, loneliness is a real problem. There's a lot of people that struggle with it, especially the elderly. This morning, and we're going to look at what are, is God's cure for loneliness. What is God's cure for vulnerability and being all alone in this world? And we're going to see what the Bible says in that area. Well, I'd like to welcome you, by the way, if you're new, to Crosswinds of the Spirit Lake Campus. It's great to have you here, especially on this Mother's Day. And so I hope if your mother is around that you can get around with her. You can tell her how honored, how loved, and how highly valued your mother is. This is a really special thing that you can be able to do for her on this day. Now, on both of our campuses, we stay in lockstep studying through God's Word. And we've been studying as a church through the book of 1 Timothy. And let me give you a little bit of a 5,000-foot overview where we are in that study just to bring you up to speed. The first third of the book of 1 Timothy uh, talks about doctrine. The letter of 1 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul to a young man named Timothy who was the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And what happened in that city is a bunch of people were starting to move away from Jesus Christ. They were thinking that when we studied Jesus for a while, let's move on to something better, more interesting. They were considering Jesus like a fashion trend. You know, for a while he was in style, now Jesus is out of style, let's go to something new. And Paul is adamant in the front of this book. Jesus does not go in and out of style. He is the only way we can know God. He is always where we keep our focus. That was the first third of the book. The middle third of the book had to do with godliness and the importance of doing the hard work of godliness and the hard work of trying to be a godly pastor. And we completed that last week. Today we begin the latter third of the book, which has to do with relationships and how we treat one another, especially in the church. So this is incredibly practical stuff, because isn't most of what we struggle with relationships? So that is what we are going to look at here in um, this study. 
Now, just so you know, as we begin to dive in, you need to understand that Paul is going to tell us the church is not like any other social group that you are a part of. Some of you are probably down in that Thursday judo class at the Y, and you have friends at the Y, and that, that's good, but the judo class in the Y is totally different than the church. Some of you are in book clubs, and you like to get together, and you do together things with your book club, but the church is totally different. Let me explain to you why. The Bible says that God loves us. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, who died in our place for our sin. And then what happens is that God calls us, and when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, He adopts us into His family. That's the key word. That we are adopted into a family, and that we are literally brothers and sisters to one another. Now, you're not a brother and sister to the guy in your judo class, are you? You may throw him around, but he's not your brother. Now, this is the key thing to understand. Because we are a family, we treat one another completely differently. A lot more love, value, honor, and respect. In fact, church, like today, it's not something you run in and run out. It's a family reunion. You're with your brothers and sisters together. So let's go ahead and look at this, and we're going to begin by looking at the importance of church as our family. So the, the question we're developing these things under are, what are God's cures for loneliness and vulnerability? Number one, my church is a family, and I am not alone. It begins with this. Paul says to Timothy, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him, as you would a father. Younger men, as brothers. Older women, as mothers. And younger women, as sisters, in all purity. Remember, uh, Pastor Timothy is a young man in his 30s, and Paul has sent Timothy to the church in Ephesus to help get this church in order. And we've seen that some of the leaders in this church are trying to drift away from Jesus Christ. And Timothy's a young guy, but apparently as we read this, you're going to see he's going to have to have some tough conversations with some older men who are getting a little bit spiritually out of line. Now, I'm sure Timothy feels like he wants to just rebuke these guys, just to like torch these guys because they're trying to walk away from Jesus. But what does Paul say about how he's to discuss these kind of things with older men? He is to encourage them and treat them like one of them is his own father. A great deal of respect and a great deal of honor is shown, to be shown for older men in the church, even if you disagree with them. Now let's just face it. Sometimes a church can be frustrating. Sometimes it can be particularly frustrating for younger men who would like to do things a little differently, but there are older men in the congregation who would like to keep things the way they are. That's just sort of the way it goes. Now, I'm not talking about crosswinds specifically here. We have some wonderful older men. I can tell you that. Very mature men. But let me just talk in generalities here. The honest truth is it's usually the older men in the church who are in the seat of influence and control. True? Usually older men are very risk-averse. 
Let's not do anything new. Let's not upset the apple cart. Also, older men typically like to live in the past. And they remember the way things were. And we wanted to go back to the way things were. But on the other hand, you have these younger men who are in the church who are filled with energy, who are filled with creativity, who are filled with ideas about the way they would like to do things, and they bring them to the older men, and what do typically older men say to the younger men who bring these ideas to them? Bah! Humbug! No! I tried that 20 years ago and it didn't work! Why waste your time? And they sort of kill it. And then the older men look at the younger men and say, you just wait till you have to put your teeth in a cup to brush them and you'll understand. <laughs> Isn't that the way it goes? Amen. There you go. How are those teeth in the cup? I don't know. Tell me about it. <laughs> All right, okay. okay. But the idea is sometimes you can have a lot of friction between Older men who want to stop things and they're in control and influence, and younger men who has creativity and ideas and they want to do things. How are these two to interact? A younger man, he says here, is to have a great deal of respect for the older men and to always, even if you disagree with them, to treat them as if they were your own father. You respect someone's age even if you don't agree with what they're saying. Maybe another way to look at it is like in the military. You know, sometimes in the military you have a commanding officer, and you may not like your commanding officer, but do you still salute him? Right? Right, you salute the uniform, right? That's what they say. You may not salute the person, but you salute the uniform because he is your commanding officer. And in the same way, if you have an older man in the church, he is older, you give him respect, you give him honor, even if you don't agree with him. You're never harsh. You treat him like a father. Now let me flip this around. How should older men treat younger men? I think that older men should intentionally be seeking out younger men, building relationships with them, and being encouraging to them. Not ignoring them. Like this past weekend, we had a, um, what I call the shoot em up blow em up event over at Jerry Hagbert's. And we just unloaded our tons of firearms. And we didn't do it like it was summer camp. Like the 30-year-old dads go over here and the 60-year-olds go over here. You know, we just mix them together, right? So all of a sudden, people who are older and younger get to rub shoulders with one another, build relationships, and be able to be encouraging to one another. Another thing you need to know about how we do things at Crosswinds that may be a little different than what you're aware of, um, we intentionally make seats, or we, I should say, we intentionally make room around the leadership table for younger men. Like on the leadership board, we intentionally try to have some of the younger men that God is developing and growing in leadership in the church, we make room around the table for them so they can be active contributors. Now, why do we do that? Because the truth is that if you don't make room at the leadership table for those who are growing in leadership, they will end up leaving the church instead of leading the church. Because if God has given them those gifts and they need to express them and it's never happening in the church, it's always being controlled by older men, they'll go someplace else where they can use those gifts. And personally, I want it to be here. 
So we make room around the table. First thing, we learn in the family, we treat older men like they're a father. We give them respect and honor. Next, it says, treat younger men like a brother. Now, I need to clarify some things here. Because some of you probably treated your younger brother a little bit more like a, you were a Judas than a Jesus. And by that I mean, you know, you probably didn't quite get along all the time. I mean, I have two boys, and even though they love each other, sometimes there can be some sparks that fly in the house. I don't know, you guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah. We had this happen around Christmas. I mean, we had new Christmas clothes on. You know, mom's happy, all dressed, looking pretty nice, and all of a sudden we had a wrestling match bust out in the living room between a 21-year-old and a 19-year-old. We're talking buttons are popping, zippers are ripping. I'm like, the clothes haven't even seen the washer yet. They're destroyed. You know, but that's sort of what happens. I mean, there was one time it was really funny. David ended up getting Daniel into one of those mummy sleeping bags, you know, and it's like sealed it so you have a little air hole in the top and then left him in the front yard. I mean, it looked like a five-foot-long inchworm having a seizure. You know, it's like all over the place, you know. When it says to treat younger men like brothers, it doesn't mean you torture them. <laughs> but let's look at the positive side. How do you treat your younger brothers? You look out for them. You help them. It's family. I mean, say your younger brother is out there and he's doing some repairs in his home. And you're like, hey, can I help you? I'm there for you. You're my brother. Your younger brother needs a generator. Hey, I got one. Needs a chainsaw. I got one. I'm there for you. It's the same way it's supposed to be in the church. This is your family. The younger men are brothers. They need a chainsaw. You have a chainsaw. I got you. A generator. I got you covered. I'm there. How about older women? It says to treat older women like they are mothers. And that's just pretty good, especially on a Mother's Day, isn't it? Now, um, how many of you love your mothers? If you don't have your hand up, you are dead meat right about now. Okay? Everybody needs to love. Look at that over there. You're like, oh, yeah, you, get your, you didn't have your hand up fast enough. We all love our mothers. We'll go out of the way to do anything for our mother. I mean, if mom needs something at the grocery store, you go and get things for her. If every once in a while you like to take mom out to eat, you just honor your mother because she's Mom. Now, here is where it gets interesting. Oftentimes in our society, older women are not valued, they are ignored. Isn't this true? Go to the checkout line in the grocery store. You tell me how many magazine covers have older women. I don't think so. Right? They're not there anymore. Society doesn't look out after them. That may be the way society treats older women, but it's not how we treat older women in the church. We value them, we honor them, we give them dignity, love, and affection as if they're your own mother. Here's the thing that's so incredible to think about. You know what older women love? Family gatherings. Isn't that right? Can any older women give me an amen on that one? Don't you love when you get the kids together? Yeah, exactly. You get the kids and you have the grandkids and you just it feels so good to have a family gathering and see that all together. Well, here's the deal. 
like every weekend, older women come to church and there's like her children all around her who treat her with honor, dignity, respect, and value her like she's a mother. It's like a mini taste of heaven for an older woman on the weekends every time she comes to church. At least that's the way it's supposed to be. That's God's plan for the church. It's a family. Now there's one last category, but it's a very important one. Treat younger women like sisters in all purity. All right, young men, let's talk about this one. Very important. You noticed I have that verse memorized. You need to keep that verse memorized. Treat younger women like sisters with all purity. This answers the big question that so many people ask me. They go, I'm dating this girl. How far can I go? Well, here's the answer. If you wouldn't do it with your sister, you don't do it with your girlfriend. And that's not me talking. That's the Scriptures. Would you make out with your sister? I hope not, or you're from a really strange family that came out of the backwoods of West Virginia. Would you lay on the couch with your sister and have your arms all around her? Probably not. You wouldn't do that. You treat your sister with purity. Now, in our culture, our culture views young women as sex objects. That's the way it is. But in the church, we view young women as sisters. What do we do with a sister? We protect her from the creeps, don't we? So don't be a creep. Or somebody who is a brother in Christ will have to protect you from her. Because we treat our sister with honor, with value, with dignity, and respect. God's plan is that what's supposed to happen is a young man and a young woman are supposed to meet. By the way, the best place to meet a Christian woman is in church. That's usually where the Christian girls go. You meet in church, then you have a brother and sister relationship that is without sexual overtones where you just get to know one another as friends. And then what if a romance develops and you get married, amen, praise God. But if it sort of starts to fizzle out, you know what? It's okay. Because you weren't intimate. You weren't involved. You weren't touching. You were a brother and sister. In fact, if the romance fizzles out, you can still go to church and see that person. And that person may end up getting married to somebody else. You can still look that guy straight in the eye and not have regrets. Because you treated her like a sister with absolute purity. And that's what the Bible tells us to do. Some people will say to me, um, women should be treated as equals to men. Now, I don't agree with that. You don't treat a woman like she's a man. The Scriptures say you treat a woman like she's either your mother or your sister. You treat her better. That's what the Bible says. Now, the first thing we need to see when it comes to the issue of loneliness and, and vulnerability. You need to know that if you are a Christian and you are in the church, you are not alone. You have a family of brothers and sisters, of mothers and fathers who are there to look out for you. You're not alone. 
people are going to stand there for you. But the other thing Paul says, you don't just have a church family, but we have biological families that we are a part of. Biological families are really important. And biological families stick together. Look what he says here as we continue in the text. Number, or number two, it's our responsibility to care for our aging parents. Paul says, honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return for their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. Let me give you a little background. In the ancient world, there was a number of widows. In fact, the first ministry that we see the church ever beginning was a ministry to care for the widows. You see it in Acts chapter 6 in the ch- going on there. And there's to feed widows and to care for them. And why was it so important to do this that the church stepped to the plate immediately to care for widows? Number one, you need to know there was no government assistance programs. So if a woman didn't have a husband or someone watching out for her, she was literally in a really bad way and on the street really fast. Oftentimes what would happen is women would be driven to prostitution to make ends meet. And so the church stepped right in and says, we're going to look out for the widows. Now what apparently has happened in the city of Ephesus, which is like other churches, which cares for the widows, they have a very big widow list. And the church is giving lots of money to care for these vulnerable women. And what Paul is saying to Timothy is um, something that doesn't quite sound right to us, but it will in a few minutes. We're going to trim down the free lunch program from the church. We're going to cut back on who are the widows that we're caring for. Now, let me explain to you a little more of this before we show you how he cuts back. Number one, you need to understand what a widow is. We think of a widow, we think of an old elderly woman whose husband has died, and so perhaps the church is there to care for her. Literally, uh, what this means to be a widow is someone who has suffered loss and is left alone in the world. So a widow could be an older woman whose husband had died, or it could be a younger woman whose husband has died. Or it could mean that she is without a husband because he has deserted her or divorced her. What this means is that a widow could be elderly, or she could technically be a young, single mom. Now, this morning, as we continue our study, we're going to spend most of our time focusing on an elderly widow. But in two weeks, because next week we're going to have a graduation Sunday and Pastor Stephen will be preaching, but in two weeks as we come back to this, we're going to continue to look at elderly widows, but we're also going to specifically look at what this text says to young, single moms. And we have a lot of those, so you want to be here to hear that. So widow is very broad. A woman who is left alone in this world without somebody caring for her. The other thing you need to know that is very helpful is about the dowry. Now, some of you have studied the Bible for a while. You know there's this really, oftentimes us guys think it was a bad idea, this bad idea of a dowry that guys would have to work three years, four years, five years, maybe then to go pay 
for a wife. And all the younger guys are like, are you kidding me having to work five years to pay for a woman? That's crazy. But actually, there's a lot of good biblical wisdom in this. Because what was supposed to happen is when a man worked and then he paid a dowry, the dowry would go to the woman's father. What he was supposed to do is essentially keep that money in the bank and let it earn interest. And then say her husband died or deserted her or divorced her and she was a single mom with nobody to care for her. What do you think cared for her? The dowry. That's when the dowry was taken out and used to make sure that she was provided for. Also, by the way, it also cut down on divorce. Because if a guy realized he had to work three to five years to get a woman, he wasn't too quick to leave her and try to get another one and start all over again. You know, just a little added incentive for marital fidelity right there. But that's the way it works. Now, what we have here, when the church is caring for these widows, these are women who don't have anyone protecting them of various ages, but apparently their husbands never paid a dowry. Or if they did, their father-in-laws spent it on something else. Now, the first way that Paul says that these roles should be cleaned is simply do this. These widows, do they have any children? Do they have any grandchildren? Do they have any family? If they have family, the family should be caring for them first, not the church caring for them. If there is a crisis in the family, it's a family's responsibility to step to the plate in time of need. And I like the way Paul says this. He says, let them show their faith and their godliness. You want to live a godly life? You step to the plate and you take care of your elderly parents or your elderly grandparents. You don't ignore their grandparents. You don't leave them and say the state is going to take care of them. You don't put them on the street. It is your job to take care of your elderly, ailing parents. Now, just so you know, uh, some of you already know this story, but a number of you are new, so I'll tell you a little bit about it. I'm an only child. I was actually uh, not a planned child. I was not supposed to be born. My parents had decided not to have children. And the reason for that is because my dad is a diabetic. And he has juvenile diabetes. He's had juvenile diabetes since age 19. He is going to turn 84 this month. He has lived 65 years with juvenile diabetes. Now, you need to understand it's not a little bit like you have today where you have monitors you can put on and you have mechanical pancreases that can do some of these things. I mean, we're talking, he started in the days where you had to boil your syringes after using them and meter it all out, and he would check his blood sugar, you know, multiple times a day and give himself two to three shots a day, 65 years doing this. And... When I came along, he was very concerned. In fact, everyone was concerned that he wouldn't live that long because he was a very fragile diabetic. And um, he took out multiple life insurance policies expecting that he would be the one that would pass away. And he, as you'll see in a little bit, he didn't. But what he was so concerned about is that he would leave my mother and myself 
without anyone to care for them in this world. That my mom would be a widow and I would essentially be all by myself and we'd be in poverty. So he worked very, very hard in spite of his handicap. Every day of the week, his alarm would go off at 5, 10 a.m. He worked as an accountant for Kraft Foods. He would go in early. He would stay late. And just a ton of work. And then all the whole time trying to monitor his blood sugars and take care of his blood sugars. And just to be honest, I may, be on the, I may not be, I'm not over-exaggerating this. I'm probably under-exaggerating this. He has probably had over a thousand episodes of hypoglycemia. I mean, my mom regularly up in the middle of the night to give him orange juice to get his blood sugars up. Ambulances there all the time. That's what I grew up with. Not expected to live. He did everything he could so I would be able to have a family. My mom, she uh, decided to work part-time. She was a school bus driver for handicapped children, so she could be home after school, so I would have somebody to come home to rather than an empty house. And so they sacrificed a ton uh, for me. And then three years ago, when my mom came down with cancer, and we went out immediately to see her. Um, it became obvious as we were there a while um, that her health was deteriorating and deteriorating fast. And we weren't going to just leave them in Philadelphia to fend for themselves. I have an incredibly wonderful wife who deserves uber kudos on Mother's Day. Uh, but she went out and she lived with my mom and my dad for most of that summer taking care of my mom as she was passing away of cancer, plus taking care of my dad as his diabetes were constantly low and having all kinds of trouble balancing it with the emotional turmoil of watching his wife that he um, <laughs> met at age 19, dying, and just tough stuff. And I spent some time out there too, and we switched back and forth. And the result of it was after mom's funeral, dad insisted on trying to live on his own because he didn't want to be a burden to anyone. And as you can guess, that didn't work out real well. And I kept begging him, Dad, come live with us. I'm not putting you in a nursing home. No way. There's nobody out there you know. You'll be so lonely. No one's going to care for you like we're going to care for you. You're my dad. It's an honor and a privilege to care for you in your elderly years. And so for the last three years, my dad has lived with us. And we care for him each day. And we monitor his blood sugars. And we make sure he has food to eat. And some people have said, wow, that's really amazing that you would do that. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's just basic biblical teaching. That's how you demonstrate your godliness. You honor your elderly parents. That's just simply what it says. In fact, what does it say here in Exodus 20, verse 12? Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. Now, some people think that that verse is talking about little kids, you know, a little bit older than Addison, you know, honoring their, their young parents. That's true, but it, it's really not focused on that. It's primarily focused on people my age honoring their elderly, aging parents. So, what does the Bible tell us to do? Number one, it's our responsibility to honor our aging parents. We have family, biological family to care for us. Number three, if someone doesn't have family, then they are truly alone. 
She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Paul says a true widow is somebody who is left all alone in this world. She doesn't have a biological family standing behind her to care for her in time of need. And it also seems to imply in this text that a true widow is somebody who also has no finances behind her to care for her in her um, time of need. And she is literally praying for her daily bread. Now, you may think it sounds bad to have no family behind you and to have no finances behind you. But Paul says there is somebody who is worse off still. That is somebody who is not flat broke, but somebody who is a widow who actually has a bunch of finances that her elderly husband left her before he died. And then what does she do with those finances? She becomes completely self-indulgent. She spends all the money on herself. I call this the it's all about me widow. And it's about me pampering myself. And Paul says this woman's husband may be dead, but she's as good as dead herself. Because she's not doing anybody any good because she's just indulging herself on whatever wealth she has left to her. And let me give you an idea what this may look like. This is the 75-year-old widow who's left alone because her husband has died, but she has money, so she decides to go to the plastic surgeon so she can now look 55 instead of 75. This is the 75-year-old widow that thinks she's going to be cool and hip and trendy, and so she goes to the tattoo parlor to get a tattoo. Now, I'm, I know people like that who are 75 who are getting tattoos, and I'm like scratching my head. I'm like, just no, no, it doesn't look good. Do you guys remember Silly Putty? Anybody remember Silly Putty? Remember how you'd flatten it all out and then you'd put it on the Sunday comic strip and then you'd peel it up and you'd have the comic strip there and what were you supposed to do then? Like stretch it, right, and deform it. I mean, that is what I picture when it comes to a 75-year-old woman getting a tattoo. I mean, there is no collagen left in your skin. I mean, every single time somebody looks at it, it's going to be oh, oh, ah, stretched and deformed. I mean, it's like, why are you doing this? It's because you've become a self-indulgent widow. You're trying to become a 70-year-old version of Paris Hilton. It's really what it boils down to. And look what Jesus says. He says, you know what? It would better to be a poor widow who has no family and no finances than someone like that. I love this story that Jesus tells here. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering blocks. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which makes a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contribute out of their abundance, but she gave out of her poverty and has put everything she had, all she had to live on. Jesus says, see that woman? 
She has no family, no finances. That's a godly girl right there. That's what you want to look up to. Last point. It's our job to provide for our children and relatives, not just ourselves. Verse 7 begins, command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. This is a great verse, a huge memory verse. What it is telling us, men, our job is not primarily there for us. When we get a raise so I can buy a bigger house, a faster car, or a longer boat. That's not what our job is there for. Men, our job is there to help us provide for our wife, provide for our children, and provide for our relatives, our brothers and sisters and mothers. When they hit difficult times, because we're family, we have an obligation to step to the plate and help them in time of need, not just live larger and spend more money. That's what Paul says. And he says this very stiffly. If you do not provide for your relatives and your family, you have denied the very faith and you're worse than an unbeliever. Because as Christians, we have an obligation to, first of all, our biological family and to help them in time of need. But also we have an obligation to help our church family and them in time of need. Now, one person asked me after the first service, well, what do you do about somebody in your family who maybe is an alcoholic or who's using drugs and they call you up asking for money? Do you just send it to them then? No, maybe we send you to the doctor. <laughs> maybe we pay for rehab. Maybe we send you clothes, but we're not going to help you in your addiction. We're going to help you out of your addiction. So there are some limits to this. But the point is this. We talked about at the very beginning loneliness in this world, vulnerability in this world. As Christians, God has a cure for both. It's called the family. First of all, your own family, your biological family, where we have an obligation to be there to help our kids and our parents and others in time of need. But there's also another layer, our church family that's there to help us because we are brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers all knit together with Jesus Christ as the head of our home. Amen? Amen. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for giving us family, a church family and a biological family. I ask that you would help us to step to the needs of our brothers and sisters here in church and I also ask that you'd help us to step to the plate and meet the needs of our own biological family. In particular, our elderly parents. That is, they grow older and weaker and more vulnerable and more dependent. That we would be Christians. We would display our faith by stepping to the plate to sacrifice for them and help them, even financially, in their time of weakness and need. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen.
This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.